Welcome to Can You Keep a Secret, Tom? We're, uh, we got a good guest today, Mr. Brett Hedekin. Um, uh, I, he needs to become a pastor in a mega church or an assistant coach in the NHL or a five-star general because hmm. he's a motivating man, wouldn't you say? I think two of the three he could do. The five-star general might be a little, he might've missed his window. He could, I, if he doesn't do the coaching thing, he should definitely go into the military. I don't think he can go in anymore. Yeah, What's the age requirement? I think you can't go in after a certain age. And I think he's a little over 50. He's looking pretty good though. No, he looks good. He looks really good. Um, what's new in your life? What? Uh, uh, well, we're sitting here in our brand new studio. That's right. We are. This Full is Tab Sports Studios here in uh, 324 South Main Street, Stillwater, Minnesota. Brand we're, new. We're a brand on the rise. Uh, I think we're on the NASDAQ as of this morning. I think Pull Tab is publicly traded. Wow. Um, Thank so, God. So things are, things are moving well. Um, I, uh, I just got back from a little road trip. Um, do you know much about soccer? I went to this MLS All-Star game. I actually worked a, a year yes. in soccer for were, MLS, San uh, Jose. Was Landon Donovan on your team? He was in L.A. We had mm -hmm. Eric Winalda was our superstar. I remember that. What What are your memories of the MLS? It was kind of cool. Um, so we had this deal where I worked for a very intense Englishman. Peter Bridgewater, and he was very intense and very, very good at what he did. We played at San Jose State, mm -hmm. and so I remember we lived in Palo Alto. We didn't obviously have kids yet, my wife and I, and every day of the game, we would have to show up at like eight in the morning and literally set everything up, you know, from barricades to signage to you name it. It would take you the entire day to set the whole stadium up for the game that night. You'd have a two-hour game, and then you would have to tear everything down. Wow, it's like a band coming yeah, into Yeah, you'd town. have to take everything down. So it was quite, you know, it was a lot of work. It was fun, though. I enjoyed it. I actually did enjoy it. It was fun. How how Was the MLS kind of still just a baby at that point, oh, or was it brand, thriving? Brand spanking new. Yeah. It was right out of the gate. Um, the, the team was the San Jose Clash. And then they ended up turning, they moved to Houston and, or, or I think the Dynamo. And then now they originally came out of that one league with Pele. Remember all that yeah. stuff? Minnesota had a team. The Minnesota Kicks. Yeah. And, and that team then was the San Jose Earthquakes. So now I believe they do have a team in San Jose and they're called the Earthquakes again. But it was very much early parts of MLS. What do you think about naming your team the Earthquakes when like, People can die from earthquakes in your marketplace. I mean, it wouldn't go over probably very well. You it know, seems like it, that would be. I wonder if that would make it hard to be a fan had you had something. Well, it's happen. not a really good marketing ploy to market yourself as a spot. I guess the Carol to Carolina Carolina Hurricanes, right? I yeah. guess maybe it is. Maybe you play on the edge. You know, I give don't them know. give them something a little scary. But it's know? a good league. I mean, it's they've done really well. I mean, they they figured it out, and you can tell us about your experience there in D.C. But you know, they they uh, went they they originally started playing in these huge football stadiums, right? And they would draw, you know, you know, decent decent amount, but fill up half the stadium if they were lucky. And then they ran around and built these soccer specific stadiums. And I think the MLS has it got it's got it going on. They're it, doing well. The uh, the stadiums are really a cool size. Um, so Audi Field is, I think, just built for soccer. I don't know what else happens there, but it's that perfect size where. It's just big enough to feel big and you're outside, but it's small enough that almost everybody in there feels like they have a good seat. Yeah. The uh, My two observations 
one big, one small. This fan base from MLS is, I mean, you know when you're watching a Coke commercial and there's like 17 different people having a dinner party together, all different nationalities. And I mean, I've never seen a fan base that's this diverse and young. And um, I mean, it looked like, it looked like future America, you know, I mean, compared to, I guess, PGA and even NHL to a degree, it was shocking how interesting the fan base was. Yeah. And I think, I think the interesting thing about it too, is it keeps growing. Right. And obviously the participation part of it is huge with kids. And then what the, I guess I, I shouldn't be, I don't even know if this is accurate, but then, you know, they kind of fade away. They don't stay with it. You know, I think it's one of the knocks on not knocks, but one of the concerns about soccer is kids all play it, but then they kind of go on to other sports. Yep. And, you know, but I, I really think the U S has it got, you know, even with the women and whatnot, I mean, um, it's really growing. I mean, to think where it was, you know, you, you look back at the MLS and you think like when I was in it, 1998, 99, you probably would have bet it's not going to last. And now it's booming. And just I mean, seeing, yeah, and it's because it it is open to everybody, and people coming out of the woodworks wearing these Arsenal jerseys. That's who the MLS All Stars played a European club, and it was uh, the other observation. This is a, a less um, important, I suppose, but soccer fashion is really interesting. So, if you're in the, I think this is only if you work in the business of soccer, you wear a, a really small sport coat. I don't know if this happened with the Clash, so almost like a tux jacket. So the sport coat ends just underneath your belt. And then you've got the slim fit pants. It's not like NHL. They don't stop at your shins and no socks and Gucci loafers. It's They go all the way down to the bottom. And then bright white tennis shoes like Air Force Ones or Stan Smith's. Or, I mean, that is anybody at any VIP event at an MLS deal is wearing a little short sport coat really long pants and these these bright white shoes like they're an instagram girl i must have missed that we were just golf shirts and khaki pants and yeah i don't think i could pull it off but it was we we weren't we didn't have short jackets yeah i don't know where you get a short jacket maybe europe chess king manhattan do they have a chess king still around here I think they probably do a Jose Bank, perhaps, is where they Jose got Jose Bank. Yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> two for one. Suits two for one. Um, so how uh, how's moving going? What are your what is your impression? You've moved a lot. You're mm-hmm. gonna be out in Arizona. Yeah. Um, long distance dedication. Pull tab, what, pull tab west. That's right. We're expanding. Um, what uh is it I I found it to be taxing on my mental health. You've done it way more than me. Were you are you kind of good with moving? Well, my wife is really good at moving. Yeah, and so I'd have to give her all the props. Um, we've been lucky over the years because we've moved with a different team, so we've had some help with movers and whatnot. The teams kind of took care of some of that, but nonetheless, it still was a lot of pressure on my wife and young kids and whatnot. Of this time, yeah, it sucks, but I got a good partner and. She kind of has us marching to the same line and um, she's doing all the work on it. We're just doing what she's telling us to do. But yeah, it's, it's you just did it moving into your new house. I mean, it sucks. It's a tough deal. And everybody that's done it tells you it sucks. Yeah. And, and you, when they say it, you're sort of like, okay, you know, but then it really does suck. There's two kind of, there's two or three parts, right? So like, you catch yourself seeing things that you can't believe you bought, 
right? And that annoys you because, you know, the kids used it for five minutes or I got into a hobby for five minutes. But then the second thing is then you see stuff that really, you know, nostalgia, you know, makes you feel like, oh, I remember that. That was cool and photos and things like that. And then that just kind of rolls a little bit into melancholy where you're like, eh, you know, I'm not the, as you know, I'm not the most sentimental person in the world, but I've caught myself a few times looking at stuff and remember when the kids were younger, we were doing something and, you know, the house, you know, that was our, that was our headquarters for 20 plus years. And you went through the same thing. What was something you saw that you bought that you couldn't, do you have like a Nordic track or <laughs> I remember we once, there was a, my dad uh, bought at Brookstone. You remember Brookstone? It was a table like this about half as wide and you would roll those things it's like the thing where you put the dust on it and you okay. roll it but it was the oh. bad it was the bad homemade version not oh. the one not the one you'd see at a bar yeah um, at white bear bar they have one in the end yeah it was like the the home version shuffleboard the home version of tiny shuffleboard yeah I, guess. I you know honestly like it's more the stuff like that the kids would want on a whim like we have a punching bag <laughs> really just, like you were in an everlast phase well <laughs> i don't think i was um but you know one of the kids wanted to box so you have a heavy bag well it's not even a heavy bag. oh it's you have the one where you go no no it's like you fill it full water sand and then it's a it's almost like a ufc thing where you can kick it and punch <laughs> it and and i remember i remember i'm not going to call out the kid who we got it for but i remember when we got it at dick's sporting goods i'm like this is going to be basically me throwing 300 dollars up why don't i just take this money and throw it out the window no 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 i'm going to be in, i mean and then now it's faded and it's not been seen seen the light of day in two two years three years so it's things like that jump out and i'm like god God, that's bad parenting. On the flip side, though, kind of a cool item for the office. <laughs> would it still respond to impact? Would it? Oh, would yeah. it, it would come back. It's a little faded. Again, it's one of those things. It's 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 a uh, vertical, and you just yeah, it, it leans back and forth. But you yeah, you could go after it. It could be like one of those stress reliever things, and and we have some other really bad things in there too. Like I think um, one of my other sons who's producing for us he got into a goalie phase where he wanted to be a goalie for soccer and we've got goalie gloves and lots of colorful gloves yeah, just a bunch of stuff and um but you do that kind of thing because your parents and you want your kids to be happy that's right hey just uh, just a little thing before we get into our guest um you turned me on to the bear mm -hmm. it's always good when your business partner is like hey you should watch this show called the bear because I think we could learn something from it, and and then you watch these people screaming at each other in a restaurant. And I was like, it didn't. It took me till about the second season to come full circle on all of the the meaning of why you recommended it. But um, you're watching a show now. Uh, is is it holding up this new one you're watching? Goliath. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. I mean, it's over. I got through all four seasons. So in the world of so, if the bear is like kind of on the on the podium as a pretty maybe the best show of 2023. Yeah, I mean, I like it. Yeah. Where would Goliath fit? All right. Like close. Really? Yeah. I mean, I like Billy Bob Thornton and it's just a good, it's, you know. Like what it, network? It's um Prime. Okay. And so, you know, the whole premise is just kind of the underdog. A guy who had it all down and out, but, you know, but he has a good core and he, you know, protects the underdog and yeah, it's good. I like it. I've been doing suits. And, Everyone's uh, doing that now. My daughter's watching that. Other people are too. So I got to tell you about it uh, briefly. 
So there's this main character on the show. His name is Harvey Specter. And this guy only cares about his job. I think he I think you only see him not wearing a suit maybe in eight seasons, probably a total on camera of 40 seconds. Maybe if he, he's jogging or something. But uh, they actually shoot him kind of pale where he's like a, a vampire. But he's just... He's just the coolest. Everything about him is wrong, right? Mm-hmm. He, he can't say I love you to a woman. He works all the time. But he's like this amazing archetype. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm only halfway through. Then you got the Princess Megan in there, mm-hmm. Megan Markle. Um, it's a procedural, though. So it's it, – I don't even know – I didn't – I wouldn't have thought I could watch it because every – the show is actually served up in like 90-second um, – bits mm-hmm. and then they do almost like the sound design like you'd get on law and order where it'll be like dun, 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 dun. and then it just starts another 90 second bit like it's super cheesy mm-hmm. like on on face value like it's it looks like bad primetime television from the 2000s or something but when you watch it it's just soothing as hell really? you like all the characters it's kind of mindless you know Let's watch the next episode. And there is something about this. I, I would like you to watch it just because I'd be curious what you make of this Harvey Specter. He's almost like a, a vamp. I think he's going to have a big impact on these young kids too because every single you know, Gen Z millennials crushing suits. So I don't know. I don't know what that's going to do culturally, but um, it's there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I definitely want to take a look at it. Um, it's kind of funny. Like I do end up watching a lot of the shows recently that my kids watch because the other, I think my oldest got into the bear. If I'm not mistaken. I got in somehow, but yeah, I mean, I'm going to check that out for sure. The, the bear is like, is just masterful. Oh, it's the, um, the, the it's suits. The I don't know how to, I would almost say to you suits is terrible television that you're going to love. Mm-hmm. You know, it's Nothing like, it's like, it's, it's just, it shouldn't work today that many years later, but there's something about it that it's like a, a weighted blanket, I think, for everybody. Well, it's like movies. Like, I always laugh because, you know, we both like movies and stuff. And, you know, I'm not a movie snob, so I can watch anything and find enjoyment to it. And so, like, when you do those big blockbuster movies, what I'm trying to think of, you know, like a... Barbie. Just, or ju- yeah, or a Justice League, and guy people will be like, "Oh my God, I can't believe you went to do that." And I'm like, "What's the purpose? I want to go there for two hours and not have to think about anything." Well, that's like Mission you know, Impossible, right? Like, now, okay, right? I mean, I'm there to enjoy myself. I'm not there to find meaning in every single thing I watch. So it's interesting. It seems like Tom Cruise is the only person that can make a film that works in a theater anymore, and he's now Mission Impossible is out. And yeah, made a bunch of dough. Would you go see that? Oh yeah, just for sure. popcorn movie. Just for sure. Yeah, that's and, a good way to say a popcorn movie. For sure, I would go see Mission. I mean, Tom Cruise, he's, he's got it going on. Yeah, I, I, he may be drinking baby's blood because he's not aging. I'm not sure what sort of trades he made. It's that Hollywood, good trade. It's that Hollywood lifestyle, man. When I, you can work out for all day long and have someone tell you what to eat, you'd be that. Look, you'd look that way too. Have you watched uh, Little Man yet? No, I've seen it on that thing. It's 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 been queued up into <laughs> it's my creepy. Yeah, so I've for, seen parts of it. If you just want to do yourself a favor, just check out the Wayans Brothers um, classic film, Little Man. Um, I 
I, I will not describe it um, on the show because I think there's only one way it goes. I, I think if I were to try to explain what the movie was about, I could get canceled potentially. Yeah. But it's it's uh, the fact that that happened though is worth watching. It's teed up like you know when you go to Netflix and it shows like because you, you've browsed. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you've been down. Well, I, when you mentioned it, I knew what you were talking about, but I have not seen it uh, in its entirety. Yeah, so far, uh, my 22 year old son living at home has introduced me to Keanu, That's a movie a good, about. I, I, a, I like that one. A movie about a cat with Key and Peele, and then uh, Little Man was something he had sort of teed up for me when i got home from work one day you know so. what keanu's um, movie tagline is right uh, for the movie poster yeah what is it kitten please <laughs> <laughs> without further ado i think it's time to uh get to our guest mr brett hedekin can you keep a secret is sponsored by chill boys or as i like to say life-changing underwear bamboo boxers and briefs if you're getting a little swampy down there, it's been a hot summer. We're in a drought. Let's get let's get cool on the undercarriage. Let's have some menthol on our men parts. Let's play a giant gum commercial right down below because that's what these do. They're, you think I'm joking. I, I swear when you put these underwear on, it feels like you just opened the freezer door to cool yourself on a hot summer day after mowing the lawn. So check out Chill Boys, life-changing underwear, bamboo, boxers, and briefs. Kenny Keep a Secret is sponsored by Duke Cannon. Duke Cannon makes hardworking products for hardworking guys. If you're somebody that puts product in your hair, don't be grabbing whatever your stylist gave you or what somebody sold to you at a hardware store. Get the good stuff. Get the Duke Cannon. It's made for guys. It's built for your hair. Serious Flow is one of their best products. Uh, certainly has captivated the mind of the hockey community. They got giant bars of soap. They got everything you need to take care of your grooming. That's Duke Cannon, Minnesota company. They support the U.S. military. Get on board with Duke Cannon. Man, do we have a good guest today, Tom? Uh, a legend, one thousand thirty-nine games, two hundred ninety-four points. Stanley Cup champion, Olympian, entrepreneur, tequila connoisseur, <laughs> troubadour, Mister <laughs> Brett Hedekin, all the way from North St. Paul. He made the trek down here to visit us today. How are you, buddy? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Always good to see a couple of Minnesota boys, good friends. Yeah, great having you. Yeah. Yeah. So I uh we're gonna we are gonna wind it back just because it's kind of fun to get our bearings. So I got it. So North St. Paul, um, I want to hear like what was it like for you growing up? Gerald and Teresa. Uh what's like if you were a sitcom as a kid, like what was your is this like mac and cheese and uh What's dad doing? What's mom doing? TV dinners? What was it life at the Hedekin household? Well, Tom and Jerry, Terry and Jerry, whatever you want to say, <laughs> they, they went together like peas and carrots. I think they grew up together. They grew up in the same neighborhood. And a matter of fact, the neighborhood that they were a part of, there was, I guess, 100 kids within a square block that my mom and dad grew up together. And, you know, my dad was, you know, out of high school, you know, a tool and die, ended up kind of having a job, eventually became a jet mechanic. But played softball three, four night, days a night or a week, excuse me. And then my mom was, she, you know, she worked at least one job sometimes too. So I grew up watching a couple of, you know, North St. Paul kids trying to make it. And I think that's really, if I think back of where, 
maybe I got my work ethic. I think it was through watching those two. Yeah. Um, just kind of plug in every day and make the most of it. Were and they good athletes? Did both of them were. Yeah. I mean, my mom was a good athlete, but my dad was really good. I mean, he was a terrific softball player. You know, even I think he had a trout with a professional softball team at some point. But when he, he played third base. So when you play third base in softball, oh, yeah. you better be quick or you're going to have a flat nose. Right. I mean, he <laughs> he was a guy that uh, without question was uh, I'd watch him and he was he was top shelf. I mean, great, oh. great athlete. Oh, that's well. So I didn't know you played four sports. So hockey, football, soccer and golf. So yeah. what what is this? <laughs> What does this look like? This is uh, what was the pecking order of those sports, and what kind of player were you in those sports? Well, I really thought I was going to be a football player, and then for whatever reason, uh, I didn't grow until I was seventeen years old, where I grew seven inches in one year. But prior to that, I played football as quarterback as a kid growing up. Loved loved the sport, and even though I loved hockey, I think I was more leaning towards football. In my freshman year in high school, I played football, but I was getting run over. Five foot six, not really conducive to be playing, you know, football and being run over on the field. So I decided to try soccer. Never played soccer in my life. I decided to go, okay, let's give this a shot. And showed up and because I could run, I had some quickness to me and had some agility, but never had a ball hit my foot really. And just said, you know, I'll try it. Ended up making the team as kind of a secondary player. Uh, played my you know sophomore and junior year, and then all of a sudden my junior summer, I I grew seven inches and said, you know what, my senior year, I'm going back to play football. What's that like to grow seven huh. inches in a summer? Yeah, I mean, were you just like, I mean, did, like you you left school and you showed back up in the fall, and people were like, who is this person? That's or like what a, happens? That's like a Marvel comic. That's like incredible origin story. That's like something that Peter Parker does. <laughs> or like the Captain America Steve. Yeah, Rogers. for real. That's not like you were you in a like a bale of hay and you were naked and then your your parents found you and you were like seven inches. Who is it is this the same kid? Yeah. Um what yeah, tell what what was that like? That's yeah. like a that's a movie, like an '80s movie, where you wake up seven inches tall. I went in to get my license when I turned sixteen, and I remember fibbing, lying, whatever you want to call it, saying I was five foot six, one thirty-five. I was not at one hundred and thirty-five pounds. I think I was much less than that. And uh, by the time I turned seventeen, that you know I was six two you know, 165 and uh, <laughs> just like that. And, and I remember walking into school and I, I can you know vividly remember a couple of teachers coming over to me and saying, what in the world? Are you the same kid? And did you grow yesterday? Like what happened? And uh, that was kind of how it started. I don't remember being clumsy. I don't remember really, you know, losing a lot of my coordination as far as I could remember. I'm sure people watching me is like, yeah, maybe he's lost it. Uh, but I think it was more about all of a sudden I had some power and I had some size to me yeah. where that was kind of, you know, for sports, it was uh, starting to starting to work, particularly in the hockey world. Yeah, I was going to say, like, so when you before you grew, were you like one of the better players still? I think, you know, as a, my mom and dad would tell you that, you know, I didn't think of myself as a good player, but I was always one of the smaller guys on my team. Right. But I think that forced me to be scrappy. And a matter of fact, I remember getting some awards at the end of the year where they hand out this award and that. I've got some scrappy awards tucked in a, in a shelf somewhere All right. uh, that said I was the scrappy player. But um, they said that I always could skate at a high level. Okay. And I was always noticeable on the ice, even though I wasn't very big. So that was one of the things I think as a kid I had going in is I was really a detailed kid. I remember watching 
great skaters and how they played and I would try to imitate them. And that's kind of how I became a good skater. So then you walk in at six, two, <clears throat> I'm sure they yeah. were salivating and then you just took off. Right. I mean, like, did that affect your skating at all? And that seven inch growth? I mean, cause that, sometimes you hear that, right? Like he, he grew and he's got to get a stride back and all that stuff. Or was it just like riding a bike? You know, going into that senior year hockey, I think I was really unknown. And nobody had really, they knew I was a, a player that could skate, but they didn't know this kid was 6'2 and he had potential. And it's like everything kind of just kind of came together that uh -huh. senior year. I didn't have any schools looking at me my junior year, not one. <laughs> Matter of fact, even after my senior year, when things kind of came together for me on the hockey rink uh, in my senior season, um, I finally had one school knock on my door, St. Cloud State. And they said, we think you could probably play college hockey at Division One, but we're starting a new program. Uh, we, we're changing from Division Three to Division One. Do you think you'd want to come here? I'm like, well, you seem to be my only option. <laughs> and uh, and I took it, took the partial scholarship and ran with it. Wow. What was the – so you're known for your skating back in the day, besides like the Madonna jersey flap, and he's from Michigan, so we'll throw him <laughs> out. Is, but what, what, okay, I was going to ask what that is. Well, it's – He's beautiful, there's just, yeah. There's a lot of people with slow, slow motion – music videos in their head of Madonna skating with the jersey flap. Uh, okay, I don't know, I gotcha, I don't know okay. what, it's in soft focus. It's in there. You can recall it. Okay. Um, but but I would say, Brett, you're really known for your skating. I saw a finish second and fastest skater to Mike Gartner uh, at wow, some point. Wow, Gartner um, could fly. Um, but uh, did you, I think I remember this, did you train with somebody and there's a lot of people that have kids playing hockey. They're trying to figure things out. What would you say to somebody trying to be a great skater? What did you do? Did you specialize in anything? And why did you become such a great skater? So growing up in North St. Paul, there was a, a gal by the name of Sue Pearson. I remember telling this story. Uh, we were in the 1994 Stanley Cup Finals against the New York Rangers. And I think John Davidson asked me a question about um, how, who taught you how to skate? And the Sue Pearson was a figure skater out of North St. Paul. And I remember telling John Davidson the story of how I really began to be good at my edges following her as a figure skater in these power skating, you know, summer uh, camps that I would do with her. And I'll, I'll never forget John Davidson bringing it up in the Stanley Cup final in one of the games. And Sue Pearson happens to be watching it at home in North St. Paul. And she starts to weep oh, wow. <laughs> because her name was mentioned. And uh, but that's kind of. Very I was cool. really detailed when it came to feeling that and holding the edge as long as possible. Some kids just go down the ice and they're just quickly moving down instead of really trying to feel the seat cut on the outside edge or the inside edges and, and feeling it all the way, holding on to the last second before you move to the other blade. And I think that detail of seeing what it was supposed to look like and then trying to apply it, I probably was more of a visual learner mm -hmm. as a kid. Mm. And I think that may be how I applied that visual learning into my athletics. And and I think through that repetition at a young age, you know, if 10,000 reps of anything you're going to get good at, I think that's what kind of laid that foundation. And then I started adding some power and some strength. And obviously the size we talk about is when all of those things, the edges and the power and the size started to come together. So you do color for San Jose now. You see every team throughout the year. Who, as a skater, a pure skater, who are the guys you just go, damn son, like well, that is like, like that is a thing of beauty. Just on the skating, who are your top guys? Well, clearly for me, Connor McDavid 
is, you know, you mentioned Mike Gartner and, and you mentioned Mike Madano. You know, I had a chance and privilege to play with Pavel Bury for 10 years. I mean, uh, Alexander McGillney, the Russians are typically uh, Sergei Fedorov. And, but I look at Connor McDavid today and I see his power, his agility, his ability to handle the puck at a high level, at a fast pace, never seems to slow down. I love how he can stick handle and put the puck through players, pick it up with his skating ability on the other side. I mean, the game has changed. 2004, 2005, the lockout, <clears throat> excuse me, is when they changed the game for the better. They said, we have to take out the clutch and grab. And that was the moment that the game moved positively in a direction of skill mm -hmm. and people that could actually, actually skate at a high level. And that moment, you started to see the NHL as far as skill level throughout uh, really start to take off. But when I think of the greatest skater, skater I've ever seen, I'm thinking Connor McDavid. And that to me is one of the things of beauty. And, and Eric Carlson is not too far behind. In his prime, he was as good as you'll ever find. Uh, but those two guys come to mind right away. The uh, Hey, when you were at St. Cloud, Herb Brooks was there? He just left, uh, I think, a year or two before I got there. Okay. Did you you had a relationship with him though through like Olympics? You knew him, right? So what, any any Herbie stories or what was your relationship with I, uh, the legend? I do have a Herbie story, and <laughs> uh, it it I'm, it's a tough one because um, 2001, I get a call from Herbie after the season. It was just the 2001 2002 season. And they were going to look at a bunch of guys that were kind of on the edge to make the Olympic team in 2002 at Salt Lake. Yep. Going to be at the, in the United States. Uh, any American hockey player would be wanting to go for that team to be, to play on us soil, to have a chance to win a medal in, in front of your own country would have been something amazing. So um, he calls me on the phone, Brett, Hey, Herb Brooks. I'm like, Hey, Hey Herb, how you doing? Heard of you. <laughs> yeah. I've heard of you. Uh, Hey, I'd love to see you go over to Germany and, and represent the United States and play in the world championships. Um, I really want to get a look at you, Phil Housley, the uh, chance, you know, Aaron Miller, all these guys that are on the cusp of making it that five, six, seven, eight role. Even, you know, that's the, that's what we're going for, for you. And I'd love to see you play on the big sheet and yada, yada. I said, Herb, I'd love to go play in Germany. I'd love to represent the U.S. I'll do it. Mm -hmm. I'd love you to have, take a look at me. I want to prove it. Yeah. Anytime in my career where I've had a chance to go out there and have to show it, it's that going back to my mom and dad, Tara and Jerry, growing up in North St. Paul, knowing you got to put the time in. And I go over there and I I had an unbelievable tournament for me. I was completely focused. And I I had, you know, I ended up getting a watch at the end of the tournament saying the all uh, defenseman team for the Americans. I mean, I outplayed Housley, I outplayed these guys that were there. And they, Phil Housley is one of the greatest players I've ever seen as well. So taking nothing in, uh, away from Phil here, it's just, this was a moment I went over there, I earned it. And I thought I would get this shot to play on this Olympic team in 2002. So that summer I go to Colorado Springs and it's the tryout and they separated everybody into three groups and the A group, B group, C group. And I was on the C group, didn't even get a look. They sent me home. The Olympic roster comes out. I'm not on it. And, uh, I was pretty ticked off at her, to yeah. be honest with you. I yeah. was like, you know what? Don't call me again. Don't USA Hockey, forget about it. Just I'm done with you. Because yeah. you can't tell a kid to go over and play and, and you want to see him and you go over and you prove it and it doesn't mean anything. Right. That's that's no good for kids and even for adults or even if for, for you know professionals. So um, that year, um, I get you know moved to Carolina about midway through the year from Florida. 
I'm there a week in Carolina and I'm like, this team has what it takes to win. I could feel it. Sure enough, we go all the way through round one, round two, round three. We beat Toronto to go to the Stanley Cup finals and we're playing Detroit. We go into Detroit. They have a hundred and plus million dollar payroll in Detroit. It's before salary cap at the time. And our payroll was in the 20 million. Take the money aside. David versus Goliath. Okay, mm -hmm. that's what we're talking about here. An all-star team versus a bunch of junkyard dogs. And we go into Detroit and we win game one. And they win game two in Detroit. Now it's, I'm waking up from my pregame nap before game three, four o'clock in the afternoon. Herb, clearly a hockey guy, knows that you're laying down between two and four, the whole NHL shuts down. You could rob anybody's house, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, that's that, a good idea. That window, really note, good idea. Hey, noted. Uh, yeah, yeah, don't take that note. Um, the phone rings, it's, uh, is Brett there? Uh, yeah, this is Brett. Hey, uh, Brett, this is Herb Brooks. I said, yeah, right this is. I go, who is this? He goes, this is Herb. I said, hey, Herb. He goes, uh, Brett, I just want to say you're, you're playing great hockey. You're playing unbelievable. And uh, you guys are, have really got a shot to win the Stanley Cup. And he goes, I'd love to see you bring that Stanley Cup back to St. Paul. And it was just a, like kind of a pause. I can, oh, yeah. I, I can still remember his voice. Yeah. I can still remember that pause. Yeah. Bring that cup back to St. Paul. And it was kind of, I get a little bit choked up because yeah, the guy yeah, was a I'm phenomenal, up. phenomenal man that I really looked up to. And really when I was 10 years old, it was that moment that I said I wanted to become an Olympian when he won a gold in Lake Placid. Right. I mean, that was when my journey and my dream started at that moment as I'm watching the, the 1980 Olympic team win a gold with my dad sitting on the carpet of leaned up against the couch watching that moment happen. So I think when Herb, called me it was his way of saying hey you're still a saint paul kid you're still a guy that you know um maybe i didn't give it the right shot to i didn't i, yeah. get, I didn't give you the proper look probably and that was his way and then he ended up passing away shortly thereafter in wow. that car accident and then but i'm glad i'm glad he called i'm glad it was him that i heard his voice and, and that moment happened it's so great because he doesn't need to do that no you know no and and it's it's so hockey too because he's apologizing to you without apologizing to you, right? <laughs> yep. He yeah, not, doesn't doesn't want to show his hey, stripes. Hey, yeah. <laughs> just hey, you. I'm gonna set this here. Yeah. You do with it what you will. Kenny Keep a Secret is sponsored by Unreal, independent clothing crafted around the athlete. Oregon's got their Nike. Baltimore's got their Under Armour. The Twin Cities has UNRL, Unreal. If you haven't got this stuff, it's the best. Get their crossover hoodie, change your life. Great golf gear. And just a great independent company started by an entrepreneur with 300 bucks in his pocket. Uh, you can't help but root for these guys. We're so happy to have them. Unreal. Oh, Let's do the Olympics right. for a minute, yeah. okay? So... Um, 92, you're on the Olympic team. I remember this team, man. I remember in high school watching Ray LeBlanc kicking pucks, Donatelli. Uh, yeah. Walt Kachuk is on that team, as a matter yeah. of fact. Amazing. Um, you end up going to Torino after the the experience in Salt Lake. Um, so uh, I want to hear about Olympic hockey, maybe a little bit about 92, 06. You meet your wife in the Olympic Village. She's pretty good on her edges as well. Uh, <laughs> Yamaguchi. So... Um, like what, what's it like being at the Olympics? Like is the Olympic village as amazing as I, I picture it or like, do you just love the games? Well, you know, in Albertville, France, where this Olympic games was in 1992, they had a village up in Maribel 
and then they had a village down in, in Albertville. So two different locations. Think of Maribel in a, in a ski town uh, halfway up the mountain. That's where they had the arena for the hockey games. And then the, all the, a lot of the other uh, athletes, again, kind of split in half. So it wasn't the Olympic village that you know, maybe some Olympics have that feel. Um, and, you know, I, I will say the rooms were really tiny, which is fine. I don't even remember, you know, no big deal there. The food, I don't even remember any of the food. Uh, you know, we were actually going to pizza joints downtown Maribel after, you know, the games because we were like, hey, let's just put some anything in us right now yeah, that yeah. tastes good. But I think you're on such a high, like for, for me, that moment at 10 years old to set out a journey, said, I want to become an, I want to do that. I want to become an Olympian and, and to do an opportunity where I never really had a chance at a, at a national team. And it was after my junior year college, I'm on spring break with all of my college buddies that we skated with that year in, in hockey. And where'd you go? Uh, we went down to Florida, down to Fort Lauderdale, Sarasota. Yeah. yeah. We were at a, a buddy's place and. I got a call from my mom and dad. They said, Brett, the national team just called called us. They want you to fly home tomorrow, get your equipment, meet the team in Boston, and fly to Russia to represent the USA. They want to get a look at you for this potential Olympic team in 92. My mom and dad are crying on the on the call. I remember one it was in one room, and you know, the old days you got not speakerphone, you got yeah. the old hand hard hard phones, and and they were both on a line and they're calling me and flew home that day. And again, that one of these moments I go over to Russia and I play four of the best games of my life. Well, the coaches of that team were gonna be the coaches of the next Olympic team, Dave Peterson, local uh, you know, in Minneapolis kid that uh, grew up, did good, was a great uh, international coach. Anyway, I get asked to try out for the national team and when we go, when I finally go and try out for that national team and I make it, you don't really know if you're going to play in the Olympics. And you tra you leave college, you travel around the world. So Kachuk and Bill Guerin and all these great hockey players that I was joining. I was one of only a few Minnesotans, by the way, back in the day, all Eastern kids. And then you get this sheet of paper that they put up on a wall that basically say you're going home or you're going to the Olympic Games. And so I guess your question is like, I was on that list to go. Mm -hmm. And so you walk in, in France and you fly in with the team and they give you the USA stuff. I think that's when it starts to hit you like, holy cow, Yeah, I'm an Olympian. I'm somebody that is representing the United States of America. And then when you put it all on and you're in this Olympic village and you're going to walk out with your fellow Americans for opening ceremony, that's when it's like, so I always say when these Olympians or these pro hockey or basketball or whoever they are, they need to walk. They need to walk in with their fellow countrymen into opening ceremonies because that's the moment for me that just was like, yeah, this is like, this is the real deal. Like, yeah. I, I can't even believe I'm here. Yeah, because you know what's crazy is the dream team, you remember that group? Mm -hmm. Barkley was one of the few, the few guys that actually dove into all got that stuff after, and he said it. it was the best experience of his life yeah. everyone else was on a yacht or private accommodations and barkley just said i'm i want the whole thing and he just loved it well he, he loves hockey was, right yeah. he's a guy that loves yeah, hockey yeah, yeah we love charles Barkley. yeah that's pretty cool though that's an amazing so now am i correct three game sevens so does One, you get two. the rangers get you the Carolina team initially gets there once, and then you mm -hmm. you get over the hump and you win your cup. Is that accurate? Did you go to yeah. seven in all three? Um, in two thousand two against Detroit, they we didn't go seven okay. in that one, but we did have a couple of game sevens. I think in that run that that was a 
against Calgary. That was the first game seven I'd ever played in. And I'm in Vancouver playing for the Canucks. We're down three to one in the series. And uh, Pat Quinn came in, this big Irish coach, one of the greatest men I ever had and ever had been coached by. Um, when I first got traded from St. Louis to Vancouver, I was a little broken. And I, you know, I tore my MCL my rookie year, trying to come back from that. I, I'm way over my head in the NHL. And, uh, you know, my confidence was shaken. And when I got traded to Van, he kind of took me under his wing and said, because he was a former defenseman in the NHL. I said, Brett, take a deep breath. I'm going to teach you how to play this game from the ground up, from the net, from our below the goal line out, I'll help you. And that's really one of the first times I had a coach kind of just mentor me, mm -hmm. right? Kind of say, hey, kid, relax. I'm going to, I got your back. That was like the, one of the first times I had, I felt the coach like, hey, I got your back. And boy, you can almost, it's like you can breathe. Right. Your, your, your shoulders aren't up here. You ever try to take a deep breath when your shoulders are up here? Hard to do. You know, that's stress. That's pressure. That's, and all of a sudden you, your shoulders come down holy cow, I can breathe. I can see. And, and Pat Quinn helped me with that. But um, before that game five, we're down three, one against Calgary. They were number one seed in the West. We were number eight. We slipped in. We a couple, a big trade. Well, me, Jeff Brown, Nathan Lafayette, they, they really traded for Jeff Brown, but they threw in me and Nathan Lafayette <laughs> in a deal. And they had three guys that inserted their lineup that they didn't have all year. Well, that moment um, we, before that game five, Pat Quinn walks in. He goes, boys, I want you to go up there and read this piece of paper. And we all had to go up there and read this piece of paper. And it basically talked about there was three teams in Stanley Cup history at the time that were down three to one in the series in the opening round that had the confidence and the ability to win games five, game six, and seven, and then go on to win the Stanley Cup. And he, he brought us all back in. I can still remember the locker room in Calgary, and it's – you know, it's still there today, the Saddle Dome. And he's standing there and he's walking around this big man and he just looks at it. He goes, what's the difference between those three teams and, uh, and everybody else and, and really ours? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing's different between those three, th three teams and us. Zero. That's who we are. That's the group that I know can win this game five, game six, and game seven. Wow. And... We go out there in game five and double overtime. Pavel Bure goes down. Or actually, that was, I think, Courtney on that one. Anyway, win that one in overtime. We go back to Vancouver for game six. We win in overtime. And then game seven, back in Calgary, that's the one that Pavel Bure in, in double overtime gets the pass from Jeff Brown, the guy he gets traded with, gives him a perfect pass going down the middle. Terrific move on Vernon, burns him, and you know, pandemonium, we, we end up winning that round. And that really catapulted us against Mike Madonna and the Dallas stars down there who had swept whoever they had played mm -hmm. and were waiting for us to get through game seven. And I'll never forget the moment where we go down there in game one in Dallas and uh, they thought they were going to intimidate us. Mm -hmm. What they didn't know is that inside that locker room was a bunch of guys that I had never seen compete as hard as I've ever seen them compete. These guys were animals. Mm -hmm. And this is where I finally learned what playoff hockey was all about, what it takes to elevate your game in a playoff series, mm -hmm. what sort of anger edge that you need to play on, right. not over it, but you got to be on that razor and you got to play with some reckless abandon and 
you know, F you. I mean, I mean, you have to have a little bit of that in you. And I had to learn it. I didn't even have that in me when that game seven against Calgary. I felt like I went in a boy of that series. I really say this. I, I went in a boy and I came out a man wow. on the other side of those game, those seven games. And that's we go down to Dallas and we, they again, thought they were going to intimidate us. We end up sweeping Dallas four straight. Hey, wow. what, what was Burry like? Uh, I mean, the Russian rocket. The Russian I mean, rocket. that that era. Yeah. Like, is this guy driving around in like a Ferrari or like I I I just I can't quite picture like what was he like? How how Russian was he? Was he like like a Russian with another Russian on top with the sprinkles of Russian? I mean, he had to be, right? Yeah, he he was amazing. Uh, ultra one of the most competitive guys I've ever seen. And if you know, without any clothes on and say his jock strap on i mean you look at this guy and he was shredded but yet when you look at his muscles they look supple that was the first time that kind of i raised my eyebrow like how is that guy so supple meaning he's not like he's wound tight but he's ripped yeah and and i learned many years later about training and and learned from a guy that really studied from russians and had a little better understanding of that and now i it all makes sense to me but when i say ultra competitive he wanted the best against the goaltenders in practice, okay? And so what he would do is in, in practice, he'd keep track of exactly how many goals he scored against each goaltender. And at the, <laughs> at the end of practice, he would go in and he would write it down on the chalkboard saying, hey, Kirk McLean, X goals, you know, Clay, uh, Whitmore, uh, X goals. And they'd get pissed, of course, because right. they're getting called out that he left these goals in. And it usually wasn't one goal. It was like five, eight, you know, nine goals in practice. That's so good. So what would they do next day in practice? Well, they'd be bearing down. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what he wanted. Right. He wanted their best in practice because when he knew he scored in practice, it was good enough to score in a game. I mean, this guy was one of the greatest I've ever seen. It's funny because you picture him being like, I don't know, kind of a pretty boy because the nickname russian rocket and i just picture him kind of oh he was a he was a good looking he's a he is a good looking dude but he, he yeah. sounds like he worked his ass off oh too. well i didn't know so you figure he was the first guy uh off of practice not one of these guys that stands so late he would be off practice and before you knew it his equipment would be off in the locker room and he'd be gone you wouldn't even notice you wouldn't even see him but when we got traded together from vancouver to florida him and i got traded in the same trade and we lived in the same apartment complex. And so it all came clear of a guy that's all shredded. I never seen him work out. Well, there was a nice gym in the bottom of this little apartment complex that we stayed at. And a couple of times I went down there to get a little bike flush night before a game, whatever. And I walk in there and he was churning his sweat pouring down off a bike. He gets off the bike after a 30 minute bike ride. And he does this this routine with a, with a barbell and what he did, what I saw was it blew my mind. Wow. And then it all came clear that this guy is under the radar doing it behind closed doors and doing what he really needed to do to have success. But I mean, he scored 50 goals in his sleep. This guy, you look at his stats. It's like ridiculous. That's yeah, nuts. I, uh, Hey, talk just a little bit about, um, Carolina when you, when you got it done and, um, I think it's interesting when you're talking about how playoff hockey, you have to learn how to play that. You obviously had some time to do that because you went on these long runs. You finally get over the hump. Um, what what was that team about, and, and what do you remember most about, you know, hoisting that trophy? Um, I think, you know, the 2002, four years er earlier when we, before we won the Cup in 06, 
I, when I mentioned to you earlier, like I knew if a week being in that team, I knew it had the core to win, right? Or at least I knew we had a chance to win and we lose against Detroit. Yes. But that year I became an unrestricted free agent. I could have signed with a few other teams. I think Toronto had called me. I think the Rangers had called a few other teams had called my agent and said, Hey, they want to sign you. But I elected to stay in Carolina. Jim Rutherford signed me to a six-year deal. At the time, there weren't a lot of six-year deals being handed out. But he ends up giving me a six-year deal. And because I knew that Rod Brindamore would eventually take over the captaincy for Ron Francis. And because Ronnie was about to retire. And I knew with Roddy, with the captaincy, and I knew the core we had, that this team would, would be my best shot to maybe win someday. Now, again, this is a guess. This is my best guesstimation because I'd lost two Stanley Cups. But I had seen what two Stanley Cup teams look like <laughs> from inside, from the Pat Quinn, from the 2002 Paul Maurice group that we lose to Detroit. So I wasn't blind. I did feel, I did see with my own two eyes things that I can't unsee about how guys train, how guys treat each other, how guys you know, aren't all about themselves that are into picking up guys when they're down, right? Making a, another guy better that when you, it's, it's easy for you to push a guy down that you're trying to take his job. But what, what happens if the guy's trying to take your job and you're actually trying to make him better? Mm -hmm. Think of that environment. And that's what we had in Carolina. So going into 2006, we hadn't made the playoffs the year before the lockout happened. And so we miss a full year. And again, I just knew we had the core to win. And Peter Laviolette ends up getting the job uh, in, in, in before the 2004 lockout season. They fire Paul Maurice, and he came in a little bit like his, you know, what didn't stink, you know, mm -hmm. Peter Laviolette. And and I think the first half a year that he was with us, I think he rubbed a lot of guys the wrong way. And but I think being around us that lockout season, and then seeing the way the guys trained, seeing how professional they were, seeing what type of people that he had. I think he realized one thing that he no longer had to motivate a bunch of athletes to do more. <laughs> it was probably the opposite. How do I channel these guys to build together? And so the first thing he did at training camp, he did this ropes course. He took us all away from the ice rink and he, we had to do a, a team building day. And I think that was a really pivotal moment to the season that set us on course to win a cup is we realized that at the end of it, I remember being all in a circle, um, excuse me, and I remember us all kind of had to do something where we embarrassed ourselves in front of everybody else. And everybody, every guy had to do something like that. And I just remember the guys that really thought maybe they were above things like this, they kind of got taken down a notch. And the guys that maybe were down at the bottom said, hey, those guys are just like me. Right. We're all in this, we're all in this together. The only way we're doing this and, and going on the journey that we need to go on is if we all realize that we're all one here pulling the rope. I think that was like, it laid the, I don't know, the bedrock yep. to the foundation then that we built on that year. And, and you put that bedrock down on top of a foundation of a bunch of workaholics and guys that aren't interested in their own success, but more importantly, they're, they're more interested in their teammate success mm -hmm. with a coach that finally is, has been humbled a little bit by his attitude, yep. realizing that maybe he doesn't have all the answers. And I think it was like that perfect storm. And I mean, so many great practices that we had that year and moments that we would beat teams in the third period. I can't, I, I'd like to go back and think of the games we had where we were down going into the third that we came back and stomped the team, not by one goal, 
but by multiple goals because of the conditioning that we had. And that's what Roddy Brindamore today, I think everybody talks about his teams and how they're conditioned. It really was probably on the foundation and, or the bedrock of what we did with uh, Carolina that year. Yeah, Rod the Bod was God, he, he, he's, he's, he's an unreal, animal, right? right? Oh, unreal! Like, what do you think he's doing now? He's training probably today. <laughs> so he's like got a weight vest on somewhere. Just he's just an animal. You know, I loved what, what about Roddy. Everything about him, first of all, one of my really dear friends, and I'm really proud of him to to see the success that he's having as a coach. Does it surprise me? Hundred percent, no. Doesn't surprise me. You see a lot of those videos of him coming in the locker room, and he's authentic. Not trying to be anybody else but Rod. And uh, he's a guy that was one of the first guys in the locker room. And he was the first guy he would take off, you know, his street clothes, get it, and he's in the weight room. It's not like stop. No, it's in the weight room, going through his normal routine, whatever it was. And they had these sheets of paper. We had them in, in Carolina where it was like a whole workout for abdominal, for leg power, to this. And he would just start flipping through these things, working them down. Like then go to page two. Oh, that's the legs. I mean, <laughs> that's you know. what you do, John. This right? is before <laughs> practice, by the way, right? That's exactly so, what I do. I'm I, also supple. Um, <laughs> it's hard, but that's how we set the tone. In can a you, different way. Can you zoom in on the camera, show how supple I am? I, uh, um, I do want to hear you talk about, um, you've got this phrase that I love, that uh, mob mentality, um, make others better. And seems to be something that you found as an ingredient in all of the teams that have been successful. What does that mean to you, that mob mentality? Well, it's kind of going back to these teams that I've had success with, these Stanley Cup environments that um, – Particularly, it started in Vancouver, and it was a moment, my very first game as a Vancouver Canuck. Back when we were talking about, my confidence wasn't very high. And if you can go back, you can pull it up on YouTube. It was the night that Gretzky broke the all-time scoring record uh, in L.A. So if you can remember that game, that was my first game as a Canuck. And it was my first game sitting in that locker room in L.A., and where I go out and I make a mistake in the first period that I think cost us the goal. And I remember sitting there, you know, you hear I'm thinking to myself, already running through your head, I'm new team, I just make a mistake, cost the team a goal. Um, you know, I'm not getting off on the right foot. I'm setting, you know, all these things are running through your mind as a, as a kid that, you know, young kid get it traded to a new team. And I remember sitting in my stall and Martin Jelena, who I became great friends with, who was a, an absolute unbelievable hockey player, but an even better man, comes in, taps me on the shin pad, hey, don't worry about got your we got your back. Trevor Linden tra taps me on. Hey, Hetty, we got your back. One guy after another. And I just remember, holy cow. Yeah. I'm coming from an environment where I felt none of that where I just came from. And I come into this environment and I got here one day and these guys are picking me up after uh, they knew where I was at, probably mentally, where they could mm -hmm. see. That's making others better. Mm -hmm. That's when you do that in a locker room, you do that in a workplace, you do that in places where you can build people up, uh, you're going to do good things. And sure enough, that team goes all the way to the Stanley Cup and loses a game seven against the New York Rangers in the Stanley Cup finals. I mean, we, we, we had the Rangers on, the, on their back, but that's, to me, that was the core value, core essence of making others better. You know, what's amazing is listening to your stories, like even from starting in, as a young kid to now, um, like everything you talk about is what you want to talk to your kid about because mm. hockey is so different now. I think, well, I don't know. I'd never was ever at the level you are, but every kid now it seems, and I, I'm generalizing, 
but a lot of these kids are like what what elite team they're on and all this kind of different stuff and every single thing you're talking about at the highest level is what i would want my kids to be a part of yeah well you know bill walsh he was the great coach for the san francisco 49ers um and he wrote a book called the score takes care of itself and when i read that book after i retired it, it, it everything he talks about in there is the essence of what the book is written the the title the the score takes care of itself and what you're talking about tommy is this fact that you've got kids thinking about the elite team that they need to make uh, they need to have a certain amount of goals at the uh, at the end of the season or during the course of the game or whatever that looks like per week. Anything that they think about the score or what it needs to end up. No, let's go back. Let's talk about making others better. Let's talk about t treating each day as a day to learn. Mm -hmm. And I think that humility that I've always said is the core value of, I think, any successful person. Now, humility to me means that you don't have all the answers. That's, you've got enough humility about you where you can walk into every day to say, gosh, you know, today could be a good day to learn. Mm -hmm. I could learn something that I don't know. I didn't know yesterday or even this morning, but today I'm going to, because of that humility allows you to learn. And I think that's what kids should think about today is take each day as a day to learn and a day to get better, a day to make your teammate better, a, a day to pick up a kid on that team that you see might be a little bit down. You go pick them up and then, oh, by the way, the score or all the accolades or the the successful teams that you want to make, the score will take care of itself. And uh, that was a really powerful statement to me, the score takes care of itself, because mm -hmm. I think ultimately that's really what kids should be focusing on now is just those, the bedrock of who you are as a person and individual making making people better. Yeah, because have you ever heard, like again, sorry to cut oh. you off, Kinger, but like all the championship teams, right? Um, especially in hockey, Every single time I've heard of a, a player talk about winning a Stanley Cup, it's identical to what you just said. Yeah. Isn't it funny? It's about the locker room. It's about the guys. It's about the way they would. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. It's never like, well, we had two really good players and they just carried us. And every single guy had a place to do something that was important to the team. Every guy had a place to do something that was important to the team that you just said. How does that happen? Well, it happens because every guy feels like they're important to add the value that they can bring to a team. Yeah. And how does that happen? Well, that happens because that environment in that locker room made them comfortable enough in their own skin to just add that value, not having to think they've got to do everything else on top of these two or three things that they do well, right? It's really finding a couple of things that you do are great at and then just double down on those. Mm -hmm. And if you get in the right environment, those are going to be good enough. That's going to be all you need to bring every day. And that confidence that you have, that you bring with you, with those that simplicity that's inside here of what you really need to bring every day that's mm -hmm. then you get the score and you get the championships or you get whatever else you want to choose in your life you know that's amazing hey have you thought about coaching or yeah i, I mean you're thing. like i mean i'm like <laughs> i i don't it's like i i want to get this podcast done so i can have my children listen to it or like <laughs> maybe there's a maybe there's a mega church we can put you in or like I'm, dead dead serious have you yeah. thought about coaching or public speaking or or do you get enough of that in the color commentary job? Do you get a the ability to maybe put messages into broadcasters? Because I think you are so passionate that I think you can make people want to run through a wall. Mm -hmm. And that's a really good skill. So I'm just curious if that's something you're going to do ever. Uh, you know, Rod Brindamore has called me a few times and him, him and I being really close friends, um, 
you know, I would love to work with him someday in any capacity. And like tomorrow, right? Like, yeah. Like seriously yeah. tomorrow. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, I, I think just being in a, in a coaching environment, I, when your kids are in that stage where you want to be around your, my two daughters and, and one's a freshman going to be a sophomore in college this next year. And then my other one's going to be a senior. You know, you want to be around there, even though I'm still traveling with the sharks doing the broadcasting yep. piece, but I would say I'm at that point now where I do want to be back in that environment someday. Cause I, I feel, you know, winning a Stanley cup again would be really fun. Yeah. And I think being in an environment where I can utilize some of the tools I've learned to make a guy, a guy better. Um, I think that's what really drives me. I think it is something that I'm passionate about. I would love to do it. Can get back into there to answer your well, question? I think I, I think you should. I, I from <laughs> no one. I was. I mean, it gets. It's, it's it right was, there, man. Yeah. It's yeah. it's it's exploding out of your chest. So whether that's well, a year from now or whatever. Yeah, because I mean, just listen. I mean, you're like a pros, pros, pro. Yeah. Right. And so the question I have related to that is, the players from your era. Do you see changes in the players today? Do you think it? Do you think it's the same thing, right? When they win cups, it's the same formula. But do you see any difference in the players as they get? You know, I'm going to know a lot more when I dig into that locker room someday. Yeah. I'll be able to see because yeah. here I just pick up little things coming out of a locker room, hearing from coaches saying, "Hey, the athlete's different today. You got to tell them why. Why do you want them to do a certain thing within the ice, or why am I out of the lineup? I want to know specifically why you took me out." And so the athlete today is just changed that way. We're back in our day. It's like, no, you're out of the lineup, kid. You go up in the rafters and watch the game tonight and, and get hungry. You know, yeah. that was the answer back in our day. Now it's like, no, the kids will cook. You know, they might go the other way on you instead of pulling them in somehow. But, um, you know, I think, you know, athletes today, they do want to know more. They do want to be educated on how they can become better. And I think the balance now is how do you give them a little bit of accountability mm -hmm. within that same environment? How do you say, hey, kid, you know, yeah, you're out because of these reasons, but you know what? I want you to feel a little bit of anger mm -hmm. through sitting out here tonight. And I want that to fuel you a little bit. I want that to be a little bit of the gasoline on your fire where all of a sudden it stokes it a little bit. And I want you to come back tomorrow with a little more edge. Mm -hmm. Now, this is something I had to learn. I did not have that personality where that ultra competitive, I, I shouldn't say I didn't have it because I, I wouldn't have made it that far without having a little bit of that competitive edge. But I did have to learn how to drive it into my game. And, and I had to learn how to battle in situations where maybe players were trying to take advantage of me. And I had to stand up for myself. And I didn't even know how to fight. I, and I didn't do a lot of fighting. Fortunately, that wasn't part of my role. But growing up in my era, that I had to stick up for myself a few times. But I did. I went and boxed for a couple of years in brunette boxing in downtown of the uh, Richards Market over in uh, Maplewood there. There was a downstairs basement. <laughs> I went in there. I swear to Brian Burnett, Burnett Boxing was it was called. And I didn't, I couldn't punch my way out of a paper bag, but I was getting challenged in the NHL. I walk in there and Brian Burnett, who fought for a lightweight championship at one point, he's the only guy in the, in the boxing gym that day when His I walk in. His business is thriving. <laughs> <laughs> you want to go down there and tell him that? Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't no. want to do that. Uh, 
But I said, hey, I want to learn. You know, I'm Brennan and I, I play hockey, yada, yada. And he's, uh, he said, well, son, you walked into the right place. I'll teach you how to punch. And he was the guy that took me under his wing and started to show me. And I, I literally like Miyagi son and, and karate kid for like a month where I didn't actually punch. I was like learning the technique. You, you just did a bunch of his chores. Yeah. 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 <laughs> wax on, wax off. And, uh, eventually, uh, he cut me loose and I, I started getting better, but, uh, got off on a tangent there, but I would say, you know, ultimately, you know, it's just, I don't know. Where do you, where do we go from here? So I, let's get into the transition after hockey. Cause I want to talk about your life. Um, you're a very interesting guy. You got some business stuff happening. Was it seamless? Like, how long a gap was it from stopping playing to doing the broadcast stuff? Who maybe threw you an olive branch to kind of help you get into that world? And what was that whole thing like to learn this whole headset and microphone? That's a lot different than what you were doing. How how did that transition happen? And and what do you get out of being a color commentator? Well, you know, mental health is something that I think challenges everybody, no matter who you are, what walk of life. I think anytime an athlete, even though I was a hundred percent ready to retire 17 seasons, you know, I was done. I was ready to walk away from the game, but even when you're ready, you walk out and now no longer you're an athlete. And now you've got to wake up finding something else to motivate you. And, you know, Christy and I did an interview with Comcast Sportsnet, like Bally's here in, in Minneapolis, St. Paul covers the teams. And we did this, Hey, what are these two athletes that are now local? What are they going to do now? And a couple of days later they called, Hey, would you be interested in doing this? The San Jose Sharks pre and post game? I really ultimately said no right away, but I'm like, after I thought about it and, you know, talking to Christine, the gear, the, you know, they said, you know, maybe I'll try, I'll come down and see if I can do this. And that kind of started this journey on doing the broadcasting and, and never played for the San Jose Sharks, but eventually it led to doing some color um, on the TV, like the third guy they call in, in between the benches or inside yeah. the glass. They would poke me in there a couple of games uh, here and there. And then all of a sudden I started doing some radio when they had a guy that stepped away and then uh, the, the TV became available and they said, hey, Brett, why don't you go back and forth? And, and now that's kind of what I've been doing for the Sharks and it's been a lot of fun, but that transition, I will say, was hard. And it was hard to all of a sudden wake up and think, man, what am I going to do? I got to, because I can't just retire from everything. I'm still 30, at the time, 30s, you know, uh, well, 40 years old, uh, 39, 40. And I got to do something that gets me a little passionate about something every day. Mm -hmm. So that's where the, this kind of entrepreneurial sort of gene, I think was deep inside me. That might have been dormant that kind of got flexed out and and uh, that's kind of what i've been doing since but the broadcasting has definitely been something that's kept me around the game it's allowed me to be close to the athlete that i'm so passionate about making people better in that athletic word world in hockey um but this other angle of trying to tr find other things that can really drive me is is really what's you know kind of making me tick uh, we got to talk about the Heady Pack uh, and Heady Gear as well, HeadyGear.com. But um, I actually saw this 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 invention uh, many many years ago. So uh, I'll let you talk about it. But but basically, uh, Brett has created a backpack that has more in common with a guitar case or a letter jacket or a sleeve of tattoos than it does your boring run-of-the-mill backpack and what i think is interesting about it is it's kind of built around groups you know it's built around teams and groups and 
companies and I just tell us kind of how this invention came about and and how's the business going today yeah well seven eight years ago go on a fishing trip up to Canada and it's always one of those things where as soon as you leave the fishing trip you've already marked your calendar when the next year is 360 days from now right and uh, we always call it life 360 because those five days are just our days that we fish with but um I decided to do a, a special thing for the guys one year before we went up on this fishing trip. We travel six hours in a van and cross the Canadian border, get on a float plane, and we go into my buddy's place there. And we spend five days there, and the float plane comes in and picks us up afterwards, and we catch some fish. We tell some stories. We have a lot of laughs. We have some good meals. And so I built these backpacks one year, and I get their name tape on it. If they ever, you know, the college logo that they win, I track that down. Um, you know, Canadian flag, American flag. If they caught a 40 inch muskie, I found, I found a 40 inch muskie patch that goes on the backpack. And then I created a 50 inch muskie patch, uh, 50 of those. And I handed them to Greg who would go to his house. And I said, Greg, you're the only guy that can pass this out at dinner. If a guy catches a 50 inch muskie, you get to award the 50 inch muskie patch. And then, you know, Greg goes to the Indianapolis 500 every year. And so during my hockey season, I would collect patches for each guy and I would remember, hey, this is what they like to do, or this is a special story that resonates with them, or that a patch I found that really reminds me of this guy. And I would pass them out over these last seven years. And uh, these backpacks kind of became uh, a moment for each guy, a story for each guy. And I took a photo of these backpacks next to the float plane, and I'm like, man, I, to teams, to tribes, to companies, to this is really what it's all about uh, of these stories and these moments that each guy has had over these last seven years that each guy's bag tells these stories and these moments. And that's kind of why I set on this journey. What, what kind of created Heady Packs? You know, that's what we call them, the Heady Packs, but the Heady Gear is the site. And I'll tell you, it's been since launching in, in November of 2022, it's been so fun, you know, Every day I see these sales that come in from all around the United States, from Florida, you know, Tennessee to Pennsylvania to Minnesota to Wisconsin. It's just really cool to see that these these heady packs are starting to kind of the moments that other people are starting to create with their own packs. It, it's been really fun to see. Yeah, they're awesome. Yeah, it's I a, just love them. It's a game changer too. I, I you know, this idea of. Uh, you've said it, there's a handful of moments that make you who you become. And now you can kind of literally take them with you, whether you're going on that trip for seven, eight years in a row, or you're doing something with your brothers, or it's one season and maybe the coach is handing out those patches. So very cool. I, I It's pretty it's pretty great. You've had a lot of acts to this play here. You know, you've got, uh, you know, you, you got the, uh, the superhuman, we're going to call that the spurt, uh, the seven inch, uh, growth. You got the Olympian, you got the Stanley cup. Now you're building this business with Hetty. I just wanted to, as we wrap up here, tell me about some of the biggest beauties you ever played with, or like if you had a pontoon, you can only bring four or five guys you skated with on there. Like who's on the top of your list? Who were just the guys you you're like? This is out of a western. This isn't hockey. This you wouldn't even believe this if I told you. Who were well, who were some of those guys? You know, well the one guy I, I have to say Mark Messier. You know, when I think back of Moose, the big captain Rangers, when he was on the ninety fourteen that wins, he calls it in New Jersey. We're gonna win. Scores the hat trick. You know, just the legendary you know cups that he won in in, in Edmonton after Gretzky leaves, he wins another one. 
um, he ends up getting traded to, to Vancouver or signs with Vancouver when I was still playing for the Canucks. And, and, and I, I wouldn't call him a beauty, but it was one of the guys that I finally learned, like what makes him such a great leader. And I know, you know, I remember he, we lived about a block away from each other and he would invite me down to his, his place all the time. And he had this, this gal that would live with him that would help him cook and clean because he was 100% a pro. And everything every day that wrapped around what he did was all wrapped around taking care of his body, his mind to be ready to play hockey. And you could see why he's had so much success. But I think one, I think one day I walk in there and uh, he says, Hedy, come on down and have a dinner. And I walked in there and I mean, literally there was Tyra Banks, um, beautiful uh, <laughs> supermodel, not? just a supermodel, just hanging out at his place. But I think what I saw from Mass through these times is I remember he would kick the coaches off the bus. And this is the first time I saw really a leader at the highest captaincy saying, hey, uh, guys, we're all going to put our bags in our room and I want you to all come down and we're all going to meet in the bar for a drink before we go on our, our, our dinners. And I think you can see why he's had so many Stanley Cup wins under his belt because that's an ingredient, again, leaning into every guy matters and every mm -hmm. person matters. And so, um, sorry, I'm on that tangent of just, you know, not getting a beauty story yet, but I'm, I'm thinking about the guy that popped into my head, Mark Messi. Oh, that's great. But he, but he taught me a story. He just taught me what it looked like to be a true pro from the inside of, of eating and taking care of himself to how he made a team better by making sure every guy felt important. I think those are two things I really took from a Mark Messier. That's great. I, uh, um, so, what do you got going the rest of the summer? What uh, you know, are you going to be up at the cabin? You going to get some time in yeah. in Brainerd, or what? What's your life look like in the near future? Yeah, I, I I'm excited. You know, I I landed the National Hockey League license. That's yeah. awesome. So we're going to start carrying every patch, uh, small and medium sized logo of every team in the NHL, and they're going to have me out in New York next week. So that's really exciting to know that holy cow, November we launched this thing, and I landed the NHL license. Other licenses are starting to come, but I'm really proud of the team that I've, you know, brought together. I, I, I'm proud of where we have gotten in a short amount of time. And I'm really going to be excited to meet the team in New York, all the NHL people that we're going to put these in, uh, hopefully Manhattan somewhere. Uh, but uh, other than that, I'm going to throw every night. You can see me down at the, at my dock, <laughs> yep. taking in a sunset, probably I, with a cocktail once in a while. I saw that, that I was looking at your Instagram. You know, when we research for this show, we leave <laughs> no stone unturned. We'll spend at least five, six minutes on your Wikipedia <laughs> yeah, five, and we'll minutes. look at your latest, long, calls. Your, latest calls. your latest 10 posts on Instagram. But that one of your doc with the, is it a loon call? Like, oh, I mean, just a couple was, days ago. Yeah. Geez, that, that, that could get picked up for sure. So I think that's got to be a nice peaceful retreat yeah. for you to get up there and um, run it on passion like you do to just have a minute to, to breathe deeply, but we've loved having you on. Yeah. Hey, anybody that's You're listening, um, hey, sign up. Take when you get this heady pack, it's like taking a pledge. It, you're basically, but when you buy this, you're basically saying, I'm going to live the life that I want to live and and I'm going to collect things along the way. So check out headygear.com. Um, you won't you won't regret it. Find a special moment to bring that into your group, your tribe, your team. And thanks, Brett Hedekin, for being here. Yes. Um, and please, coach. Tommy. Please, coach. Great having you. Next Great year. Yeah. Next yeah. year. All right. Well, You're hey, thank you so much, guys, for having me. Thanks, buddy. On.